You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Welcome to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Tony, and today I'm joined by a real special guest, Chris Mikowski, who has a very impressive resume. Um, historian, professor, author, editor, and co-founder of the Emerging Civil War, uh, and tonight's speaker at our monthly roundtable meeting. Uh, thank you for joining us, Chris. Oh, it's my privilege. Really glad to be here. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Chris, you are here tonight. Among uh, s- many of the books that you've uh, authored is a book called A Season of Slaughter, which details the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Um, before we get into the actual battle, I think it's important to uh, provide some context of what's going on before the battle, the Overland campaign. Um, how do these? How do the two armies arrive at Spotsylvania Courthouse? That's a great question because, um, of course, it's by this point it's um, early 1864 in the campaign season. Um, the armies have been slugging at each other for several years at this point, and so they're exhausted. But now there's a new sheriff in town, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, commander of all Union armies, and he just happens to decide to tag along with the Army of the Potomac. Uh, and there are two reasons for that. One is he wants to stay out of the viper's nest that is Washington, D.C. He recognizes it's a highly toxic, highly political environment. He's a field guy, you know. The second reason is that the Army of the Potomac um, has had some trouble, and he just figures if he can kind of hang out with them, he can inspire them to greater action. But he really wants to kind of keep hands off. He's going to let George Gordon Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, run the show, and he's just going to kind of hang out with them. It's not going to quite develop that way, uh, but that's Grant's legitimate intent at the beginning of the campaign. So everyone's wondering, how is this going to impact the campaign season? I mean, the, the Union Army's wondering, how is this going to camp- uh, impact the campaign season? Um, and as soon as the Army starts to rumble in the very first days of May 1864, and they cross the Rapidan River, making toward the Army of Northern Virginia, Grant says, there will be no turning back. And that becomes um, a prophecy. It becomes a promise. Um, and he's going to conduct warfare in the East unlike anything that has happened before. And uh, as soon as that army rolls out of Brandy Station and Culpeper in, in May of 1864, that road's going to lead inexorably to Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, even Grant him, himself said that once he, had, once he took command, his mission was to hammer continuously, this is a quote, against the armed forces of the enemy and his resources until by mere attrition, if in no other way, there should be nothing left uh, of them. Um, So you do a really good job in your book of pointing out that shift. This is a shift. Uh, You you, uh, tell of a scene, a wonderful scene, after the brutal fighting of the wilderness, which preceded uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse, where... Brutal fighting has taken place. There is really no clear winner in the field, but Grant moves forward. And that's unlike anything that has happened thus far in the war, because typically the armies would clash, they would withdraw, and then they might spend a couple months 
resupplying, re-equipping, reinforcing. Um, and that gives the Confederates time to catch their breath. It gives them time to shift reinforcements in. And Grant realizes this is, at, at its very core, a numbers game. And Lincoln's been looking for someone to do the grim arithmetic, and, and Grant's the guy. And so Grant says, you know what, I'm just going to wear these guys out. If nothing else, I'm just going to keep up the pressure and hammer and hammer and hammer till I use them up. Now, ironically, one of the core precepts of the lost cause that arose afterwards was like, oh, well, you know, the South, they didn't get beat. They just got um, defeated by overwhelming numbers. And, and they talk about that like, you know, that's a, like a cheating move or something. But like, that's the point, isn't it? You know, <laughs> right. and, and, and Grant even forecasts that in March. He says, you know what? I'm just going to use you guys up. And that's exactly what he does. And, and he does it effectively. Obviously, he, he, he does get the nickname, um, unflattering nickname of Grant the Butcher. But with the losses that he sustains, he always picks something he learns from these, these mistakes. And I think you make that point in the book. Uh, and, and, and we'll get to that in a second about how he, he learns from uh, his first assault. Uh, he, he's absolutely innovative. He's astute. He's a quick learner. Um, and when I first started working with Grant um, on the wilderness battlefield and at Spotsylvania, um, you know, I came with the same preconceived notions that most people have, you know, Grant the Butcher, frontal assaults. Um, but it was really being on the field and studying what he was doing and understanding why he was doing what he was doing. It's like, this guy's a quick learner. And, and all of those stereotypes about Grant are wrong. Um, and, and he does do frontal assaults, but that's like one of several tools in his toolkit. Um, but it's the one that gets the most emphasis because the sore losers try to play that up. Um, but I always point to Cold Harbor as the great example. We're kind of jumping ahead in the, the Overland campaign there to the beginning of June. But I always point to Cold Harbor as the example. And people say, like, oh, look, he lost thousands of guys in 15 minutes. And those numbers have been over infl overly inflated. Um, people look at that last charge that he made, um, and they say, oh, 7,000 or 8,000 8, casualties. That was the total casualties for the full day, not that one assault. Um, but he's called Grant the Butcher. Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg charges no. across on the third day, loses more men than that. Nobody calls him Lee the Butcher, no. you know, but he loses more men in Pickett's Charge than Grant does at Cold Harbor. So it's just kind of this very unfair legacy that Grant has had to cart around with him. Right. And I think even Grant said he regretted that last assault at Cold Harbor. He did um, because they didn't gain anything of, of material right. result as a result. But one of the things I also find funny is, you know, people like to, to quote that from his memoirs. Um, but he has a handwritten note um, that he passes along to his assistants, his son Fred, um, who's helping him with the manuscript. He's literally dying of cancer as he writes the Cold Harbor Fire. He's within a month of being dead. And so he's just trying to get it down. And so he writes this handwritten note to, to Fred and he says, like, I wish I had more time to write about Cold Harbor. And the, my Spotsylvania section could certainly be improved. Now, today, we, we look at the memoirs and say, like, oh, look, see, he just regretted it, didn't even want to talk about it. Well, the only reason he didn't want to talk about it is because he was trying to get that manuscript done before he died. Right. And right. as you know, he, he succeeds only by, you know, two days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So it was literally a race against the deadline. So we shouldn't read too much into the regret that he exp okay. expresses mm -hmm. in the memoir because he wanted to say more and didn't have the didn't time. Didn't have the time. Uh, while we're on Grant, so one of my favorite parts of the book was the relationship, or I should say infighting, between um, not so much Grant, but y you alluded to 
uh, Meade, who who I think at this point is the uh, fifth corps uh, uh, corps commander. Uh, he's, the, he's the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Of the Army of Potomac. Okay, he had yep. come from the Fifth Corps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have uh, uh, General uh, Sheridan, oh. who who is uh, and it's it's funny, Chris, because you're here in the Capital Region, and Phil Sheridan is a is an Albany native, or at least he, he claimed to be. Uh, and there's a very large statue. Yeah, but he claimed a lot of things right. that weren't true. <laughs> so. so so obviously, uh, you very critical of, of Sheridan in the book. Um, can you get into the relationship? Uh, Again, there was a lot of infighting, uh, and, and Sheridan was just insubordinate. Uh, it, it didn't follow Meade's orders, and he knew he had a direct line to Grant, and so he got away with it. And and I'm especially hard on Sheridan at Spotsylvania um, because his insubordination costs thousands of lives, and it's just Sheridan's ego that leads to that. And to me, that's just inexcusable because, you know, for all of his pomp and circumstances, ooh, he gets Jeb Stewart at Yellow Tavern. The rest of his raid is kind of a disaster. He doesn't achieve a whole lot, but he gets Jeb Stewart, so he tends to get a free pass from history. But because he's gone with the eyes and ears of the cavalry at this crucial juncture of the campaign, Grant has to use his infantry as cavalry. In other words, he's just got to send them groping out to find the flanks, to see where the Confederates are, to understand what the strengths are, which which means like thousands of foot soldiers have to march out and get shot in order for Grant to get the intelligence he needs. That's inexcusable in my book. Now, the reason that all happens um, is because when Grant comes east, he brings a couple of his cronies with him. And, and I say cronies, it's probably a harsh word, but, you know, Grant had his favorites, pretty clear about who his favorites were. He's going to leave his best buddy, William Sherman, in his place out west to be in charge of all the armies there. But he's going to bring Phil Sheridan, someone who's who's really impressed him, um, east with him. And he's going to put Sheridan in charge of the Cavalry Corps. And basically, Sheridan sees the function of cavalry as a mounted fighting arm of the army, which is quite different than the way it's been used. Meade saw the cavalry as screening protecting, scouting, you know, those are very traditional cavalry roles. And what Sheridan was proposing was quite um, radically different. So there was a lot of tension between Meade and the chief of his cavalry corps, um, a guy he didn't choose. So when they really come to loggerheads early in the campaign, um, because Sheridan's inability to clear the path to Spotsylvania Courthouse, Meade confronts him about it. Sheridan loses his temper, gets in this big argument with Meade, totally insubordinate. Meade, who also had a notoriously bad temper, actually dials things back, and uh, Sheridan goes off in a huff, and he just says, well, if you just let me go do my thing, I'd ride off and get Jeb Stewart. Blah, 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 blah. And Meade is, is aghast, and he goes to Grant and says, can you believe this guy? Yeah. And Grant... And, and to me, this is one of Grant's weaknesses because he is loyal to a fault. He's loyal to his buddy Sheridan. So instead of backing his army commander, he backs Sheridan. And he says, well, you know, Sheridan generally knows what he's talking about. Why don't you cut the, rule, cut the orders and let him go do it? And off Sheridan goes. And now Meade's army is blind. And so that sets us up at Spotsylvania Courthouse. Uh, one of Sheridan's tasks was supposed to be clearing the roads so the Union Army can get there and beat the Confederate Army there. But by the time I believe the Union Army gets there, the Confederate Army has, has found their position. Uh, they're, they're ready. Are they, are they not, uh, by the time uh, 
the Union Army gets to Spotsylvania Courthouse. Well, and they are. And because Sheridan fails to clear the road, um, Grant and Meade then have to use infantry to clear the road. Right. Confederate cavalry successfully delays them by kind of setting up on ridge after ridge and just doing these delaying actions, which cause the infantry to have to deploy and push forward and then get back into line. And it's just this cat and mouse that goes on for hours. Um, Grant intends to be in Spotsylvania Courthouse by 8 in the morning, and you know by 7.30, he's still trying to make his push. That delay allows the Confederate Army to march hurriedly out of the burning wilderness to get to Spotsylvania and intercept Grant right at literally the last possible defensive position before the courthouse. Right. So um, what what is the significance geographically of Spotsylvania Courthouse? Not a whole lot, actually. Um, one of the things that's unique about Grant's campaign is um, up to this point, the armies have been on to Richmond. You know, let's capture the Confederate capital. We'll force the capitulation of the Confederate government. Um, but Meade gets orders from Grant that are quite different from that. And, and Grant tells Meade, where Lee goes, you shall go too. It's the Army of Northern Virginia that is the objective, not the Confederate capital. And again, this goes back to that war of attrition. We're just going to go after the Confederate Army and destroy them or wear them down, make them unable to wage war. That's what's keeping the Confederacy in the ballgame at this point, Grant believes. So he's just going to keep going after the Confederate Army. So what he wants to do is move across the Rapidan River through the wilderness as quickly as possible and get to Spotsylvania because there the ground opens up. The wilderness is 70 square miles of dense second-growth forest, um, but Spotsylvania has a lot of open farm fields, and so Grant can use his numerical superiority there. He's got 120,000 men at the beginning of the campaign, nearly twice as many as the Confederates. So he just wants to get Lee into an open field fight and just bash him. Okay, That's one reason why Lee intercepts him in the wilderness, because he's only got 66,000 guys. And he's like, eh, you know, if we tie him down in the wilderness, he can't deploy all those men at once. He can't use his cavalry. He can't use his artillery. And so, uh, you know, that's why Lee picks that fight in the wilderness. So Grant just goes around, goes to Spotsy. Um, Spotsylvania does offer a road network. Um, you know, the village itself is not important. The courthouse building, not important. But the road network's important because that does give Grant the opportunity for more maneuver. He can move on Richmond, which he doesn't care about, but he knows Lee has to defend. So if he keeps moving toward Richmond, he's got to force Lee to come out and get in that big fight that Grant's looking for. And if that, you that know... Was a, that was a really long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Very detailed. Um, and if you know anything about Spot, the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse... Um, you know how brutal the fighting was. And that has largely to do with the mule shoe. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain what, I mean, it, it sounds silly to anybody who doesn't know what, what it is. Can you explain what the, mule shoe, what the mule shoe was and why the fighting there was so brutal? Absolutely. So as the Confederates are coming onto the field, they're literally rushing there as the Federals are trying to make that final push into the courthouse. And so they're taking advantage of the topography and giving themselves good lines of sight and, and taking advantage of the ridge lines. And so that ridge line sort of curls in a way that puts a big bulge in the Confederate line. Um, I, I have a, a colleague who likens it to a pimple. You know, there's a big swollen part of the line that sticks out. Um, and uh, that happens just because they're taking advantage of the topography. And, you know, by the time they get to that part of the line, it's getting dark. They can't quite see what they're doing. When Lee looks at it, he realizes this is a terrible position. A salient is inherently um, uh, vulnerable because 
you can attack it from multiple sides. Um, you know, if you think about a horseshoe or a mule shoe, um, and that attackers are coming from the outside, they converge on that mule shoe. They concentrate. Their fire, their, their gunfire, their artillery fire concentrates. Whereas people who are inside that horseshoe firing out have fire that fans out. It diverges. It gets weaker over distance. So the Confederates are at a disadvantage both offensively and defensively because of that. You're subjected to crossfire, and also if someone breaks through anywhere in a salient, the whole position becomes untenable because you're in, in the enemy's rear. So uh, Lee looks at that and he's like, oh, no, this is, this is a terrible position. Um, but his second-in-command, Richard Ewell, says, I can hold this if you give me enough artillery. And so Lee decides, okay, we'll do that. And Lee puts 30 guns in the mule shoe. Um, the part that history sort of forgets is that um, it starts to rain on, on the 11th of May. Lee's worried about um, Grant getting the jump on him, and so he pulls the artillery out of the mule shoe. Now, Ewell says, I can hold that if I have the artillery. Lee takes the artillery away, doesn't tell Ewell. So on the morning of May 12th, when the Federals attack that mule shoe, Ewell has no artillery to defend it. And so all those reasons why a, mule, why a salient is vulnerable the position collapses. Um, Lee's going to feed men into that fight to try to hold on, not to recapture the position, but just to hold on long enough to create a fallback position. But that's going to result in a fight that really is going to last 22 hours in the pouring rain, in water up to their knees in these trenches, just filled with mud, and it's going to be the most sustained hand-to-hand -hand combat of the entire war, and it is absolutely horrific. And in your book, you do a great job of using the soldiers' own words to describe what happened there. Uh, one soldier you quoted, all around that salient was a seething, bubbling, roaring hell of hate and murder. Um, you know, th this was not, it, 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 you pointed out, um, for more, uh, for 17 more hours in pouring rain and water and mud up to their shins with guns and bayonets, and, and hatches uh, and, and, and hatchets and fists, soldiers grappled in the most prolonged intense hand-to-hand -hand combat of the war. Um, this is not, uh, you know, this is not fun stuff. Uh, and, and it's important to, to draw on the soldiers' recollections of that because if I were to have written that myself, you wouldn't believe it. You're like, no, it couldn't have been that horrible. And it was absolutely that horrible and worse. Um, John Haley of the 17th Maine, who you just quoted a moment ago, um, you know, he said men were not as men but as demons. You know, I mean, it was just that absolute hellish. And it, and it was it, nothing any of these men had seen before. What was the outcome of the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse? Well, um, a lot of people think that the, the fight at the Mule Shoe's it, you know, May 12th. Um, and it does represent kind of the fiercest fighting, but the battle's actually going to go on for a whole nother week after that as Grant tries to maneuver and move around and, and kind of probe and look for ways to get at Lee or get through Lee. Um, so ultimately, he's not going to be successful at that. Lee's going to try one of his final offenses of the war on May 19th and strike at, Reese, uh, strike at Grant's uh, supply lines. That's going to be unsuccessful, and Grant's finally going to realize... I, it's not working here, and he's going to pull out and once more, just like he did to the wilderness, shift left and south and try to draw Lee down to the North Anna River. Now, there's a, a chapter in your book that you devote to um, uh, black soldiers mm -hmm. that, for the for the first time, 
actually fight in combat uh, and, and face Robert E. Lee's uh, Army of Northern Virginia. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, and what some of the concerns were uh, going in and to, to using black forces? Yeah, and, and nobody quite knew what to do with the USCT, the United States Colored Troops. Um, they were attached to um, Ambrose Burnside's Ninth Corps. They made up a fourth division under Ferrara, who's a dance instructor from New York City, and he <laughs> finds himself leading black troops in the war. And nobody knew what to do with them because if you send them in to fight, are you going to be accused of using them as cannon fodder? Um, can you trust them under fire? Um, you know, and so they, you know, the, the the black troops themselves had a lot to prove, a lot they wanted to prove, and so they felt really frustrated because they were generally used to guard the wagon trains, guard the supplies. Um, so it was, it was work that other soldiers were doing, um, but Grant decides to use them in the rear to free up other men who can be used on the front lines. So they finally find themselves in combat totally by happenstance because they are well in the rear guarding the wagon trains and a Confederate cavalry raid under Thomas Rosser shows up and Rosser is completely surprised the Federals and the wagon train are completely surprised the 23rd United States Colored Troops um, they deploy they successfully repel the Confederate cavalry and uh, they, they, they carry the day it was so embarrassing for the Confederates that Rosser doesn't even mention it in his reports. Wow. wow. <laughs> um, so, Chris, uh, you have, uh, as I alluded to before, a very interesting background, a very impressive resume. Uh, you're uh, a Ph.D. in English and an English professor, correct? Yes. And uh, I Actually, I teach writing at St. Bonaventure University. Uh, my Ph.D. is in English and creative writing. Um, so I really come at this as a storyteller first and a historian. Uh, it second. comes through very much in yeah. your book. Oh, thanks, thanks. Um, my training as a historian all comes from the National Park Service. Um, I volunteered for Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park um, for mm, 13, 14 years and uh, worked there as a seasonal. I've worked there as a contractor and, and I've worked with some of the finest Civil War historians in the Park Service and they're the ones who really kind of gave me my training into uh, how to be a Civil War historian. Right. So, you know, combining all of that with my storytelling background, um, you know, that, that's sort of what brings me to the Civil War because it's America's great story. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, a real privilege to be able to keep passing that story on. And, and one, of, uh, one of your ventures is uh, the emerging Civil War. Uh, can you explain to us what that is? Sure. It's a uh, kind of a collaboration between um, I think 25 of us right now. Um, and, and basically, we just contribute content to a blog, uh, emergingcivilwar.com. Mm -hmm. It's all free, um, spreading the gospel of the Civil War. Right. You know, I'm trying to really tell the story of the war in an accessible way. Um, you know, we have a very much a public history focus as opposed to something that's more academic or scholarly. Um, we want people to understand and appreciate and access this history and, and, and pass it along. So we've got, um, as I said, uh, you know, 25 of us contributing to the blog. We also have two book series. One is the Emerging Civil War series published by Savis Beatty, and that's um, you know single volumes of overviews of different battles and, and important stories. And then we have a more academic-oriented series published through Southern Illinois University Press called Engaging the Civil War. 
And again, because of that public history focus, we want people to be able to uh, engage in, in, uh, in Civil War history. So we have that. We've got an annual symposium. We've got a speaker circuit. Um, we've got, I think, uh, 18 or 19 historians who are kind of part of the roundtable circuit on a regular basis. And so, again, it's just kind of getting the story out there to mm -hmm. as many people as we can. Are you working on anything right now? I am. I'm trying to finish up a book on Mine Run, um, which has been a book that is fast, or a topic that has fascinated me for, for years and years and years and years. Um, it's an overlooked part of the fall of 1863. It does sort of offer preview of the Overland campaign uh, that follows immediately on its heels. Um, and I think it's George Gordon Meade's finest moment. You know, everyone sort of thinks of Gettysburg as the high point of his career. I think mine run is because he's under incredible pressure to send his men in and he doesn't because he doesn't want to waste their lives. Um, so it, he knew that there'd be terrible consequences for him. Um, and rather than, than waste his men, he's willing to face those consequences. Things don't turn out so bad for me. You know, he's expecting to get fired. Nobody's going to fire the victor Gettysburg. Um, but what does happen, because at the same time he does not succeed at Mine Run, Grant lifts the siege of Chattanooga. So that really is what releases Grant's star for the ultimate shift eastward. What is it about the Civil War, Chris, that, that draws so many people to its history, and we're about to meet with, uh, you're about to present to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable. Uh, we'll probably have about 50 people in there tonight. I know that you give tours all the time, um, you know, young people, old people. What is it? Why are we attracted to the Isn't that the million-dollar question, yeah. though? You know, and I think one reason I think people keep coming back is because they're driven by that question. What You know, this is fascinating. You know, why? I, I just got to keep... Learn about it, read about it. Um, I do think because it is so seminal to defining the American experience. I mean, you know, yes, the revolution founded us, but really it was the Civil War that helped us figure out what we really were. Um, so I think there's that. Um, a lot of people still have connections to the war. I mean, many people don't, particularly in the North where, you know, we had a huge influx of immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, particularly in the South, there are people who can say, my great-great-great-granddaddy did this here on this piece of property that my family still owns. Right, right. You know, yep. so there, mm -hmm. there is a, a literal, visceral, geographic connection to the war there. Um, so I think that that's important, too. Um, but I think that, um, for me, it's really important to go beyond the, you know, this number of men moved here and this number of casualties and, and kind of get into the, what does it all mean? You know, and to me, I'm still figuring that out. Yeah, yeah, I know. think that's the great thing about it, right? If, you know, if we did have that understanding, you know, or, or you know, then we would understand so many other things, you know, uh, the sort of this idea of, uh, I know it's an oversimplification, but good versus bad, or, you know, what is good and what is bad? And, um, you know, I, it just, uh, I don't know if it's a question that we'll ever answer, but uh, I do think it's important that we continue to try to, to, to answer the question. Absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent. And, and, you know, I am one of those people who will, you know, just absolutely categorically say slavery was the cause of the war. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, and there are a lot of people, um, particularly in the South who will try to argue or, um, you know, split hairs and, you know, there isn't any two ways around that central thing. Slavery was, but there are all sorts of questions that resonate from that and, and, and reach out until today. 
You know, and what does freedom mean? What does liberty mean? What does equality mean? Um, what does sacrifice mean and why? Um, and that those all come out of the war. Chris, it's it's really, uh, you know, really been a pleasure having you uh, do this. Um, I should thank the Waterville Public Library for uh, allowing us to set up in one of the reading rooms. Um, I am going to, we're going to sign off uh, and, and uh, go into the presentation now. Chris, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, you know, and I'm going to add a little PS here because mm-hmm. since we happen to be in this room, it's National Library Appreciation Week. Oh, look at you. So okay. we're going to give a little Great. extra shout out to Great. the library for having us. So if, you, if you're listening to this, please support your local library and, uh, and support the Waterville Public Library. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.